definitely seen a difference in the trade area types with respect to the physical store compared to the e-commerce store. The physical store still very much is location, location, location. Principles that we all grew up with in retail uh, real estate. The e-commerce model does have a more distributed trade area. When people are just willing to drive a little bit farther, say on the periphery of an existing physical store trade area, because they're generally spending a little more on mm -hmm. commerce. So uh, we definitely see that in our customer behavior. Those are the key changes or things we're watching. Yeah. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Location is Everything, Tango Store Lifecycle Management Podcast. As always, I'm Bart Waldeck, your host. Today, we're going to jump into an interesting sector of retail, and that's the grocery segment. Obviously, as an essential business, grocery stores were truly on the front lines, and they still are, of the pandemic. And we owe a debt of gratitude to all of those who have put themselves on the line so that all of us could continue to buy food and other types of essentials. And arguably, no other segment in retail has been impacted as much by the crisis as grocery, whether it be from how people shop to the brands that they shop and to how those brands provide their products and services to customers. And I'm just fascinated by what's going on in the sector. And I'm really excited to have Bruce Mooney, Vice President of Market Strategies at Loblaws, which is the largest retailer in Canada. Join us on Location is Everything. Hi, Bruce. Great to talk to you again. Welcome to Location is Everything. Hi, Bart. Thanks for asking me to participate in your podcast. Look forward no, to it. I, I, am, I am really excited because you've been in the space for so long and you've got some deep insights here. So how have things been going on your end lately? Yeah, thanks for asking. And I'll try to keep my responses general to the grocery and supermarket communities. So I'm not hopefully zeroing in on things that are too uh, specific to Canada. Yeah. But uh, generally, business has been quite well. It's been challenging, as I'm sure anyone in the sector would uh, acknowledge. And uh, here we're going through a third wave. And right now we're in lockdowns in, in a couple of the provinces. So we are responding to reductions in customers, say to 25% of normal capacity, working through that with our store. And we're continuing to play that role as restaurants remain closed of feeding the population essentially by our, our supermarket industry. We're hoping, you know, as the summer progresses that uh, we see our way out of this, of course, and return to some form of normalcy. So compared to this time last year, Bart, uh, <laughs> significant improvement. Of course, uh, we were all scrambling to figure out what the new procedures and protocols would be in, in on every front, but uh, I think we've got it under control operationally now. That's great. Well. Before we jump into the meat of it, maybe if you could spend a little bit of time on Loblaws, kind of a little bit about the portfolio and what your function is in the real estate process there. I'm responsible for our store network planning in coordination with uh, my real estate peer, as well as tracking demographics and competition, really trying to understand what's going on on the ground in the supermarket space. We also do this in the drugstore space as well here. Our store network planning uh, guides our capital investment strategy. And as you know, that's a key part to any retailer's growth plan about where to put stores, how large they should be. Uh, we operate multiple banners and formats. So uh, it's, it's a nice uh, complex role that uh, every single day it's something different. And that's one <laughs> of the things that allows you to stay in the business for a long time and, and keep fresh because it's always challenging and new. Yeah, and I'm sure the COVID curveball kind of took that to the next level. I mean, I think you mentioned that grocery sector has done well. You guys have done well. I was recently reading that in a McKinsey report from August of last year, 
that consumers expected to increase their spending compared to usual on groceries, so up 14% here in the U.S. in that study. And it's also a sector that has one of the highest scores for consumers expecting to shop online more post-COVID than they did prior. I think the study said 30 to 49% in the U.S., and then 50 plus percent in the UK. So what kind of changes did you see to your core business when COVID came about and how has that evolved? Those numbers that you quoted from McKinsey hold true north of the border too. And uh, okay. it's right up 14%. It's somewhere between 12 and 14% on total sales. Yeah. For sure, that adoption of e-commerce and, and likely, uh, as it mentions here, half of households have tried it in some way, shape or form through the last year. I'm going to focus a bit more on real estate to answer your question than store operations, because that's the, the part of the business that I work in. And thanks for calling out at the start of the podcast, a, a big call out to all of the colleagues in the supermarket sector and in every country across the world for keeping people fed. If I just look at real estate, however, when you look at the stores and if you go into your local supermarket in, in Chicago or in any of the markets you're in, you can, of course, see the changes to the physical store itself. Right. We had the closed departments. We had ancillary uh, retail uses such as uh, dry cleaners or fitness centers that needed to be closed in the initial wave of the pandemic and to handle working with those businesses to make sure that it was done properly, uh, including some abatement on rent, as well as how to reopen according to our store conditions. So our third-party tenants, for example, had to reopen based on our criteria in terms of the safety measures that needed to be installed. You can also see it in other areas. The plexiglass one is, is well known, so I'm not going to zero in on that. But right. the, the wayfinding in stores, the attempt to keep people apart, the lineup at our point of sale. How does the wayfinding work in the store? I haven't heard that concept in a grocery store. I obviously know wayfinding. We, we have in our software yeah. more in an office context than we do in, in a retail context. Uh, identify one-way aisles. Ah, uh, yeah, oh, I think digital. Yeah. You're, yeah, you're the stickers on the ground, which would yes. go traffic. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, sorry for the confusion there. Put so. a fancy word on it, so you can. <laughs> 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 uh, just, just to get all that signage ready in in a yeah. large stores and and have them as stickers placed on the floor. Uh, you're talking about uh, we run 2,300 stores, be it supermarkets and drugstores. So uh, that's a lot of stickers and yeah. then overhead signs as well. And this all needed to be done quite responsive last spring, as you know, and then uh, keep it up to date. We also have, as many other retailers could attest to, different local health unit or state or provincial guidelines that are different. So mm -hmm. in certain jurisdictions, what's possible in one may not be possible in another. So to keep on track of what you're, because we want to be in compliance, of course, with the health right. guidelines of every jurisdiction, there are nuances in, in different areas. So to make sure we adhere to those, to make sure that our, our customers and our store colleagues remain as safe as possible. Yeah, I mean, that's been one of the highlights I've seen in a lot of the research I've read is even from a consumer's perspective, there's kind of the safety for them as a shopper, but there's also the consumer's desire to have the employees be as safe as possible as well. And obviously you guys as well. And some of these measures, you know, there's the meg shift kind of react to the situation, get the temporary solutions in. Have you guys tried to kind of take it to the next step of like, how do we integrate some of these measures longer term and in more standardized way? Than, than maybe what you had to do to react initially? Not so much yet. And I'll focus in on one of the major changes that we did in our store, which is the lineups for the point of sale. 
Mm-hmm. So usually, if you have 12 point of sale open, you would have 12 lines. Now, the queue is a single line and is administered by a colleague who will point customers to whichever cache is open to prevent some uh, jamming at the front end, if you will. So that line often extends deep into the store itself Mm -hmm. as a single Mm -hmm. queue with carts. And that's one that when you see it as a customer and you walk in, you say, wow, that's a really long line. But then you realize there's 14 point of sales that are open servicing that line. So it usually only takes five minutes or so, which isn't all that different than it would have been uh, pre-pandemic. I'll be curious to see what our operation teams decide to do once that is removed. And here, I mean, we're still looking at probably six more months of operating that way. That's a question mark on that one, Bart. Yeah, I've seen it become, it seems a little more sophisticated than what it initially was, but it still doesn't feel like what it would ultimately turn into. And, you know, how do you protect against the next potential pandemic and things like that? So I do think there'll be a a fair amount of new protocols that will make it into long-term operating type of environments. So, well, the other big trend, as we talked about, is, you know, move to online and kind of the expansion of pickup and delivery. And I think those were elements of your business prior to the pandemic hitting, but I assume they kind of got stress tests quite a bit when everything moved online, when stores for mostly closed or had restricted hours that you were able to operate. I know for myself, you know, we use e-commerce a lot. I just have never done it prior to the pandemic as it came to groceries. I just would always go to the grocery store and it Um, You know, you'd have a major shop during the week or you might have other times throughout the week you stop in and get smaller things, but never ordered online. Now, probably 50 plus percent of our grocery shopping is done online, even though I'm fully vaccinated now, I can go into the grocery store. But it's just the convenience of it is great for, you know, a busy household that we have with young kids and stuff like that. So what kind of has happened on that side of your business as curbside and delivery has picked up? It's been the thing, right, for retail through the pandemic, and it exploded right out of the gate. And we saw a tripling of already what was a decent business for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it became uh, quite significant and highly correlated, of course, to the lockdowns in any given health jurisdiction. So we've had to adjust to that operationally and physically. So to make more room in our stores, for example, to stage our e-commerce orders or our curbside pickups, to uh, hire more staff to to fill those orders, uh, to consider uh, how to grow that business uh, again. Because I, I think one of the biggest questions in the industry, and we might as well tackle that right now if we could, is where does this all go? Right. How do retailers who have focused, uh, you know, let's face it, the supermarket industry was one of the later ones to adopt e-commerce disruption because of the nature of perishable goods. And people do like the touch and feel of their supermarket shop in general, especially on the outside of the store, if you will, the produce areas, the service areas. So not as prone to disruption as other areas of retail. But now that people have learned that they can do it, and now that you've learned that you can do it, there are all kinds of different schools of thought on this, and I'm sure many of our listeners will have lots of opinions, and that is people will rebound back to, I really just need to talk to somebody. I just want to have that experience of uh, understanding how I should cook that steak and on my barbecue and just have that dialogue. There'll definitely be a return to that to some degree. But then there's just the convenience aspect that you've raised on, okay, I've now learned to do this. I didn't expect to do it anytime soon. The industry basically, I've heard everywhere, shot ahead three to five years on the adoption rate, space of a month, some reports out there about that. And then when we all return to full opening, 
does it go back to one and a half times of what it was or two times what it was? That's the big question in front of retailers today in our space. And, uh, you know, we're all working hard at it through different techniques. And I think that it's certainly a key area of focus for, for all of us. I don't know anybody that knows the answer to this one, though. Yeah. You know, you need an answer to understand the right level of investment, you know, how much change you need to go through. So it's it's a tough question, but it needs to be answered, right? It's a push-pull thing, too. You can create it by making it more appealing to your customers, or you can, you can hold back. And we have retailers in our space across the spectrum on that. Some are holy max, some are going full tilt. Some are going full in, yeah. You know, I know, obviously, grocery is a lower margin business, volume-based, and, you know, the introduction of these new channels and the growth of these new channels, I think, probably put further pressure on margins from an operating perspective. And I recently read... Uh, when shoppers buy groceries at a store, sales typically uh, have about an operating margin of 2 to 4%. And this is according to something I read from Bain and Company. And when you look at some of these other channels that have opened up, the margins get further impacted. The margin moves to a negative 5% if you pick from the store and have the customer retrieved through some type of click and collect. And it drops to a negative 15% if you pick and then ultimately the store needs to deliver to the customer's home. So in a pressure margin environment of grocery, how are you guys thinking through these new channels and how to crack the nut of profitability here? That's a question facing every single retailer part. We are obviously trying to substitute something that our customer is doing for free today with either store colleagues, DC colleagues, or robots. And all of those require the expense being shifted over to the retailer. Obviously, having your backend processes as clean and simple as possible is one step, right? We all work on our back office efficiencies all the time, be they, you know, even the accounts payable, receivable, so that all that flows through without human interaction. Two basic retail principles still apply here. Uh, larger basket sizes from your customers. Build the loyalty of the customer base so that even though the margins may be impacted, you still have that customer in your ecosystem, whether they're coming into your store physically or click and collect or delivery. That's the area where all retailers continually need to work on. It was an issue before e-commerce. It's just been expedited because e-commerce, as you mentioned, is a margin impact for, for retailers. The capital investment that's required to stand up systems or the labor required to, to do the daily fulfillment yeah. types of approaches. And if you look around the retail landscape in the U.S., you can see who's trying to do what, where. You're in a great market to see all of it, Bart, with respect to what Walmart's doing, what Target's doing, what Kroger's doing. Yeah. So that you're able to just understand, okay, how do you as a customer see what they're doing? And is it right for you? So think about that next time you go in or you compare, because I know we've had conversations, you and I, yeah. about, uh, your daily shopping routine about uh, mixing your type of purchase on different kinds of retailers. And you say, okay, I like that done at that one. And I don't like that way done yeah. at that one. If you start to shift your shop because of that change, then that's made a difference. It's interesting because you hit it on the head just in my own personal experience, and it does tie into the brand loyalty side of things, too. It's like, So, unfortunately, I don't have a Loblaws to go shop at um, <laughs> here in Chicago, but, you know, I've got the usual suspects. I have a Whole Foods. I have a Trader Joe's. I have a local supermarket that I believe is owned by Kroger. And like you said, I'll get different things from different ones. But, you know, what surprised me, like take Whole Foods as an example, you know, we do a lot of shopping there and 
I'm ordering online through them. That's actually the only one I order online through. Trader Joe's, I can't. But with Whole Foods, it's good e-commerce experience. They notify you when your groceries are in route and stuff, and you can follow it on the map. And, and what surprised me is, you know, there's a store a mile and a half away from me, and I'm assuming it's coming from that store. But when I watch on the map, it's coming from downtown Chicago sometimes. And I'm just like, you know, I'm only five, six miles outside of the city. But it's interesting to think like, I don't know if it's come from a store there or a distribution center or what, but somehow they've determined that to meet my needs as profitable as possible, they're distributing it from the city instead of from my local town, which shocked me. And I, I thought about the idea of like, how, how do they make that profitable? It's complicated and also goes back to the brand loyalty thing. I have read a bunch about kind of loyalty changing during the pandemic. So whether it's safety or convenience or product availability, some of these lines that were harder from a loyalty perspective have blurred and people are willing to try other brands for whatever reason. Have you seen that in your business? I know you have a loyalty program and it's a big part of what you do. Has loyalty taken on a different dynamic? It has a little. The loyalty dynamics change to become locally loyal. If we can just park the e-commerce discussion for a moment, and where are people going with their supermarket purchases? And because during the past year, it's been the major outing for a lot of people. So two things have happened. First of all, without those of us fortunate enough to work at home, you know, we are we are lucky to be able to do that. Yeah. That our shopping patterns have changed. And we're purchasing more around our place of residence than I might have picked up some things on my commute to work and back. So now I've shifted more locally. But the other thing that's happened with respect to loyalty is here, people have shifted back to the service-oriented supermarkets. And uh, one area that's different in Canada compared to the U.S. is the, the penetration of discount supermarkets is distinctly different here. And the desire to go and get larger assortments in a full-service conventional supermarket has heightened. And there isn't as much price sensitivity uh, in the space as well because, well, you're not going out to a restaurant once, yeah. maybe twice a week for some families who are lucky enough to do that. Now they feel that they can, it's one of the few decent experiences during COVID, they can go and get some unique food or some food, food products or paired meal kits and that sort of thing, That which is a, another area we've seen yeah. a significant explosion in, right? Is that that's been very interesting to watch about the trend to well, we just want to have something really good because it's it's that family occasion we get together and we're not spending a lot of dollar any dollars out at restaurants anymore. So those have been the two loyalty areas that uh, that have shifted. Yeah, that rings true for us too. We'll, we'll you know buy a nicer cut of steak or we'll, we'll do something like that, and it kind of feels like the go out to dinner, but it, you're cooking it at home and it's got kind of a special meal feel to it, and and you're willing to spend more, and I guess less price sensitivity makes complete sense. Absolutely. So how does that all like these changes in kind of the percentage of transactions occurring in store versus curbside versus delivery? Has that changed for you kind of your thought of a, what a trade area of a store is? You know, is it include a delivery trade area, not just an in-store shop? Does it include a pickup trade area? And are these different? You know, is there a different type of way to look at that when you're kind of thinking through location strategy? Yeah, we've definitely seen a difference in the trade area types with respect to the physical store to the compared to the e-commerce store. The physical store still very much is location, location, location. Principles that we all grew up with in retail uh, real estate. The e-commerce model does have a more distributed trade area. 
So when, when people are just willing to, to drive a little bit farther, say on the periphery of an existing physical store trade area, because they're generally spending a little more on mm-hmm. commerce. So uh, we definitely see that in our customer behavior. So those are the key changes or things we're watching. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And how about as it relates to the kind of consumer themselves? Are you, do you, you know, again, not giving away state secrets, but one problem I know we've seen uh, with a lot of retailers, not necessarily in groceries as, as much, but kind of this idea of each department has their own view of the customer, you know, marketing has a view, real estate has a view, merchandising has a view, you know, it's, there's still silos and those walls aren't broken down. They have their own models, their own data sets, their own ways of looking at things. And now we're blending our activity as consumers so much through digital and in person that you kind of need to start unifying that. And that view, at least that's something that we're proposing or sponsoring out there as an omni-channel customer view. Do you guys think about the customer from an omni-channel lens? Combined lens, to answer yeah, your question. Yeah. It's one customer, we call it. And, and a lot of re- progressive retailers are doing this. They've recognized what you just called out, which is there really is one customer making multiple decisions, not just on location now, but on, as you mentioned, on the omni-channel yeah. purchase. We've definitely invested uh, heavily in that area. That's not so much a state secret. Uh, I can I can let you know it's in our <laughs> annual reports and about having you know information scientists and and getting deep into the data sets that our loyalty program does provide. So we see that as a key decision making tool. You know we want to know what our customers want, and that's the best way to do it. There's what they're buying, but trying to understand more where they're going and what they want. So that's that's our goal. Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about what the comment you'd made before about, you know, what I would call a generator, right? So you have work, home, shopping. There's different generators that are kind of the origin of the shopping visit. And now we're forced to the home being 99% of it. So that does automatically lend to more of a local, you know, it's not near my office. It's not on my commute. It's not when I'm out and shopping because I'm not shopping. You know, it's from my home. Exactly. So that spatial pattern has changed for sure. As the economy starts to reopen uh, here in 2021, we'll start, we'll definitely keep an eye on what patterns will change. And that's going to be fascinating again in its own right. And any number of uh, projections about the number of people who return to central business districts, for example, to be 80% of what it was before, work four days out of five, one day at home, four in the office, to lower than that. So profound changes in the office sector, which I know. Oh, yeah, we, we see that on our kind of corporate real estate side of our business and, you know, return to work planning. And you see a, a news story a day where, you know, you have J.P. Morgan Chase shedding office square footage in Manhattan and you have others now come back where Google and Microsoft are saying you got to be in the office four days a week and you only can take 12 Fridays off a year and stuff like that. So it's interesting to see how that dynamic and culture and everything plays into what that is. But in no doubt, will it have an impact on those commutes and how often you're in the office and ultimately shopping, right? How about the store format side of things? You know, one thing that, you know, we've all heard retail apocalypse for years, right? Everything's going online and, and brick and mortar is dead. You know, never the case. It's always been nine out of ten dollars or what are still coming through brick and mortar and that'll change in some of these accelerations of omni-channel but you know it's our contention that the store is almost more important in an omni-channel world potentially because it's a place of purchase so you can purchase in store it's a place of potential inventory whether that's fulfilled in the store or whether that's delivered
delivered. And then there's ultimately the kind of last mile where the customer takes possession of it. So it can be in store for shopping or curbside for pickup. So it's an important piece of the puzzle in all those scenarios. And the box needs to necessarily change potentially to accommodate these new shopping channels. Uh, I know Walmart in particular here in the States putting on like, you know, flexible inventory space for lack of better word, distribution center type square footage on the side of a superstore or Target investing in, in what they're doing. And are you guys looking at changing, you know, going to smaller formats or whatever it may be uh, as it relates to the store and kind of being more creative to fulfill this new consumer? Definitely, it's reinforced some trends that were in place well before COVID, and that is the the shift to smaller retail footprints. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll talk about a couple of things, and, and many of your listeners will uh, likely know these locations. There's two major trends going on uh-huh. here in this market, anyways, in select U.S. markets. But the first one that was underway was urbanization and densification, and that was driving store formats down size, anyways. Be it a city target, which you have in Chicago, mm-hmm. you know, a great example just opened up in Philadelphia of a Giant, who opened up an urban uh, second level supermarket a couple months ago. And it's a great example of uh, starting to adapt to the developments that are occurring in, in the central business districts or in high density areas of cities. And these are retail floor plates that are different than your suburban greenfield site that powered supermarket growth for a generation. So the urbanization of North America, and as you know, I'm going to school for that right now. Yes, yeah, right. <laughs> great learning experience going back to school when you're in your 50s, but uh, <laughs> a great experience. So there's that whole city concept of retailers, and it's, it can be a great experience if you live downtown and have a great supermarket. The giant uh, one appears to me. I, I look forward to getting there and seeing it at some point. Yeah. The other one then is the disruptors in the space. And and you look at what Amazon's doing with their supermarket, oh, yes. which is extensive in the US, where about a third of that store is dedicated to e-commerce fulfillment. Yes, you can still go in as a customer, but they're going to set aside a significant amount of floor space to have this omni-channel presence. And they have a few open in California now. And I think just- Is that the so, Fresh concept or the Go concept? I can't remember. Uh, the Fresh, yeah. or larger than, than the Go. Yeah. So an interesting concept uh, in its own right. Our response to both those trends is yes, to modify the size and, and the offering of what's inside our stores and to be reflective of what the shopping patterns will be. But as you mentioned at the start of your description, 90% or call it 85 and, you know, let's say that's where it, it sticks. That's still a very large number of people inside the store. Yes. If you told anybody from scratch, 85%, they're going to say, well, that's where I need to focus to make sure the experience and and the store itself is the right area. It's absolutely the right area to invest in. It's just a matter of identifying what categories, say, would be better if there wasn't as many facings or as many linears. Uh, And that's always been a analytical discussion for retailers, you know, through the last generation is the minimum number of linears to have to sell the maximum number of items. So that'll just become accelerated. So we're always adopting our formats. Yeah. I'm excited to see. And I do like how you can better integrate the digital and the physical, you know, Whole Foods here has done a good job with that. So with Prime and all that, so I, I go in the store, I've got my own barcode. It knows it's me. I've got Alexa, which feeds my shopping list. You know, it's it's all woven in very smartly. And I'm sure you guys are far down that path as well. But just to wrap up here, we've talked a lot about kind of all these changes going on. And quite frankly, I don't remember in my 20 plus year career in 
retail technology and real estate and facilities, this much change going on, you know, whether it's rethinking the trade area, rethinking the box itself, rethinking location strategy, all the follow on transaction work that needs to be done, leasing work, design, construction, um, facilities changes around maintenance and safety. You know, it, it just seems overwhelming to me. Does that ring true to you that you guys are feeling a, an immense amount of change today? For sure, Bart. It's called convergence in many stresses coming at you at once. I mean, energy is another one too, right? We're very active in uh, reducing our greenhouse gas footprint and being very responsible environmentally. That's another factor that will come out of post-COVID. We know that we can do more as businesses, and we are. We are. We had identified that. So when you when you layer all that in, when it seems to be intimidating or or overwhelming. Try to think about the customer. So what does the customer want? And if you're giving them a decent store experience at a decent location with the options that they like, that's a good start. They're doing well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think technology to manage the store life cycle, given the amount of change and given the complexities is becoming, I think, more and more important. At least that's what we're seeing from the needs of our customers. The information systems that you run, as I mentioned earlier on in the back office matter greatly. So it's definitely a competitive advantage if you can get those right. Absolutely. Well. I want to thank Bruce for joining us. This has been uh, fascinating. You were one of the guests I was looking most forward to having on Locations Everything. And hopefully in the future, as this continues to evolve, I have an opportunity to bring you back and we can kind of talk about what's changed since now, because as you mentioned, no one really knows. And if they say they know, they don't. (laughs) So uh, there's a lot of learning to happen and a lot of change that we're all undergoing. But thanks so much for joining Locations Everything. Well, thanks for having me, Bart. And uh, as always, I always appreciate our, our conversation. So, Absolutely. Thanks, Bruce.